recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and Ewan Christie. Welcome to episode 57 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm in PR in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. That's how we get our marketing done. Uh, You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud, and our newsletter as well at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, what's happening? Well, it's the May 2 4 long weekend, Cameron. You right. remember that? Yes, I sure do. That's a very Canadian way to say it, too. The two it is four. indeed, yes. Yes, it, of course, is really the celebration of Queen Victoria. But yes. Um, yes, us Canadians generally refer to it as the May 2 4 long weekend, right? And what is it in the U.S.? Because they have a holiday today as well, or, or, or Monday as well, right? Good question. Is it Memorial Day? I think Is it, it a Memorial. I think it's Memorial long Day. Weekend? Yeah, it's I think one, it's one of those interesting holidays where it's a day off, but it's different in different places. We don't right. get the day off here in Hong Kong, by the way. We had our day oh. off last week for Buddha's birthday, which is a holiday. <laughs> well, great. Yeah, it was well, nice. that's good. So, I mean, what do, what what do people do? On on Buddha's birthday, how do you uh, how do you pay homage? They sleep in and don't go to work when they wake up. That's how they celebrate it. Pretty simple. Okay. Yeah, I don't think there's any actual uh, actual you know uh, activities. I will say though, Ewan, I, uh, I think I mentioned maybe on the show before. Like in Hong Kong, we get the Chinese and the Western holidays, and um, the result is especially in the first half of the year, from January to July first. July 1st, which is the Hong Kong Establishment Day under China and also Canada Day. Um, from, from the beginning of the year to then, we have so many days off. Like every month, there's a couple of days, two or three days that are holidays. And then almost nothing after July 1st. So it's really compact into the first half of the year. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, we're not <laughs> there terrible. yet. It's still May here, so I'm still enjoying the days off. Well, and I've been enjoying the, the the long weekend. It's been nice. I I got out to barbecue, and then I had a oh, sort of quintessential barbecue Canadian kind of problem. Cameron it was all set. Uh, mm-hmm. Got got the barbecue fired up, cleaned off the grill. Uh, first time I'd I'd sort of fired it up for the for the year, and um, sort of halfway through. Oh no. What happened? My cook. Uh, and I came out and I thought, well, that's funny. Why is my temperature completely dropped off? And of course, what I didn't do, Cameron, was check to make sure right. I had enough fuel in the propane tank. And yep. I didn't. And I ran out. That's a rookie <laughs> that's mistake. A very quickly switched to plan B, which was fire up the oven and try and get things uh, <laughs> get things cooked the other way. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of my daughter, who was starving, and we needed to get ready to bed. Um, yeah, you know, always check the propane cam. Cam, you know, it was just you know, real bush league kind of mistake. You know, 
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, what legal issue do you have on deck this week, Ewan? Well, Cameron, I wanted to talk about social media mm. and hiring practices. Oh, good point. Yes. I can't yeah. believe this hasn't well, come up yet. Yeah, well, I well, I mean, you're right. Mm. We haven't really dedicated a show to this, and we should have. So, you know, better late than never, I suppose, right? Yeah. So let, let, me, let me ask you this. When you're considering which candidates to hire for a position, Cam, do you review their social media profiles? You know, I'm going to be honest here. I do sometimes, but I don't all the time. And I think, um, you know, one reason for that for me is I believe HR does that screening right off the top um, in HR. And then it comes to me, usually it's been it's been cleared. Um, occasionally, I will I will check it. But I will say, like, for me, I'm very aware that people have been posting. I mean, I hire a lot of younger people in Asia where, you know, the Internet has always been around for a very long time. People have been posting for mo- much of their lives here if you're in your 20s. Um, and I kind of assume that there's probably going to be a mistake or two that you put online. But I'm kind of I, I, I want to be reasonable about it. And I don't want to kind of judge somebody on it. So usually I won't check. I do check sometimes if I'm curious. So that's where I stand. All right. Okay. Well, it, it is an interesting question, right? And I was looking at a, a few surveys and sort of prepping for the show, trying to get some, some data, a little bit of research. And one of the surveys I looked at that was conducted by the manifest, this was over 500 U.S. employers, over 90% of employers factor job candidates, social media accounts into their hiring decisions. And 79% of these 500 U.S. employers, Cam, said that they've rejected a candidate based on their social media content. I'm sure. That does not surprise me at all. But I am curious, because I've seen the studies like that previously, who this is that's doing it or who the um, applicants are. Like, is this done as a run-of-the-mill kind of for applicants for lower or mid-level positions, or is this also done for very senior people? Well, great question. Um, I, I mean, the, the the study wasn't specific enough in terms of breaking down whether we're talking about executive or C-suite positions, or mid-level positions, lower-level positions. It was simply just an across-the-board mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think that that's a very, very good question because to your point, Presumably, if you're hiring a senior executive, depending on the the profession, I mean, the social media platform could weigh very, very heavily in terms of that decision, in terms of who you're going to bring in. Whereas perhaps with a lower level position, you may not pay so much weight to it. But I think, you know, most candidates, at least younger candidates nowadays, they're savvy enough to understand the value of a platform like LinkedIn, right, in sort of developing their their professional brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, make no mistake, when when HR departments, and this was what was really interesting, a lot of the research I, I looked at as well, 
this is becoming a big deal for HR departments in terms of taking the time as part of that initial screening process for candidates, low, medium and senior level positions, taking the time to to crunch the numbers on all of their social media accounts. And we're talking Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. I mean, the idea and, and, and sort of where we were even 10 years ago, Cam, of here's my CV and you should be able to base your decision on that. It's gone. Um, yeah. These are very, very real concerns in terms of developing your personal brand as a candidate, right? It's all fair game now. So I have a couple of friends here in Hong Kong, Yuen, who I think you've met, but they're very active on, on Twitter and sometimes very active politically or just very active in terms of sort of oversharing every detail of their lives or taking very firm stances on certain issues. And and I know that there's a lot of, I mean, Twitter is is excellent for people who crave that sort of thing. The problem is, is what you're talking about now is that if you're applying for a job and someone checks your Twitter, which is common, they may come across that and it might not even necessarily be bad, but it can give some signals into what your personality is like. And it might not necessarily be that you've, you've said something wrong or done something wrong, but it might just be indicative of the kind of person they don't want in the company. And that's the risk that you run, even if you're being careful with what you say sometimes. And I and I tell them frequently, like, you know, some of this stuff doesn't belong on Twitter. Some of your personal life issues don't belong on Twitter. And, you know, I, I don't want to tell people, you know, what they should and shouldn't say on social. But I do want to let them know that there are consequences. So at least their eyes are open if they're going to go down this path that when something like this happens, if they're checked, you know, by, by a future HR person and don't get that job, that they're, they understand why. Um, because there's there's real risk here. And I think even for myself personally, and I haven't done this consciously, but as I've gotten a bit older, I have shared a lot less on social. I mean, I think that's mainly because I've just become a lot busier, but I've also become a bit older. And so I think a little differently, but I am happy to have reduced my social use because I do think it can be a detriment to one's career and reputation, especially if you start getting into, into more senior positions. Yeah, I com I completely agree. You really, really have to be conscious of, of this stuff. And again, it, it's, it's always a fine line, right? Because you don't want to have some overly curated or slick profile right. as well, something that seems completely inauthentic. So it, it is a bit of a fine line. But to your point, yeah, I mean, candidates need to be conscious of this stuff. They need to be thinking about when they're going to send a statement or put it out in, in into the public domain. Could this come back on me in some way? And, you know, we, we've all sort of been caught up in those those Twitter threads going back and forth or on other social media platforms where maybe you lose your cool for a moment or you rather sort of instinctively send something out that you didn't really soberly consider. Um, and, and it's done, right? It's done. It's then out into the universe, out into the ether of the, of the internet, never to return. Um, yeah. And it, it's a, it's a problem. Now I think, that doesn't mean that employers get free reign here, Cam. And I think, you know, this is where from a legal perspective, employers themselves have to be careful because they need to ensure that their hiring practices are not 
discriminatory. And, you know, one of the big issues for employers here, Cam, is that idea of unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, let's say, for example, you're looking to hire an employee for a position, you're reviewing a candidate's Twitter feed, and you learn that that candidate happens to be married with children. Well, Perhaps the position that you're looking for requires that employee to work a lot of long hours and late nights, and you therefore draw the adverse inference that, well, in hiring, you know, somebody with a young family, the likelihood that they're going to be prepared to work those hours is going to be reduced. Well, you've just unconsciously discriminated against a prospective client, and there's human rights legislation that would have something to say about that. So, You do have to be really, really careful as an employer when you're looking at these profiles in terms of what is it exactly that's influencing whether or not you decide to bring that candidate in for an interview or whether you decide to ultimately give them or not give them a a position that they're otherwise well qualified for. You know, that that is fascinating because that is the one thing that is um, still a throwback over here. I mean, I have talked to people or been in other situations in my career where the hiring managers or HR have been very clear about, for instance, not hiring a woman in her 30s who is married without children because they're concerned she's going to, you know, have, have a child and then require maternity leave. And it's openly discriminated against. I mean, behind the scenes, I mean, openly as in discussed within within some HR departments, but not with the candidate. But this does happen. Um, I think it's quite, quite common, in fact, uh, on this side of the world. So that's a really good point, Ewan. That I think especially in, in Canada and North America and Europe and, and places like that. Well, everywhere, really. I mean, you shouldn't do that uh, as a point of reference. But, you know, there's going to be these situations where these biases are there. And, um, you know, sometimes they aren't brushed aside, depending on what the laws are in the place where, where, where you're doing business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, again, in looking at the broader picture, it's not necessarily as simple as um, a prospective employer looking at, you know, we take our, our, our sort of example of the individual who's married with a young family, not just the discriminatory or discrimination or potential discrimination vis-a-vis that individual, if that employer then turns around and expresses to, you know, other people in the department, oh yeah, well, you know, they're otherwise a good candidate, but you know what? I mean, I was sort of looking at their Twitter feed and learned that they've got a young family and you, I mean, you know how that goes, the likelihood they're, they're going to be able to put in the hours and stay here late night. Well, you've just now made a discriminatory comment in front of your in front of your colleagues, in front of your your subordinates, yeah. perhaps, um, and that also could be could be contrary to human rights legislation and could get you in a very sticky situation as an employer. So, again, um, you know, yeah, look at those social media profiles because you know, again, I think they're fair game for now, at least until privacy laws sort of sort of continue to change and they are they're changing sort of rapidly around some of these issues right and that very well may impact down the road what employers can look at and and what they can't but for now yeah be careful be very very careful in terms of attributing any sort of unconscious bias or any you know 
overt bias that could be or run contrary to, to human rights legislation when evaluating these social media profiles and determining whether or not to hire someone. Yeah, two quick points for me before we wrap this up, too, is, uh, you know, number one, you mentioned on sort of a, an inauthentic profile um, might be a problem. And, and I, I agree. However, if you are on LinkedIn and you've got one of those kind of uh, slick, overly produced profiles, that's still better than doing something embarrassing or, or some other sort of infraction uh, on social media that a, pr- a prospective employer might might find troublesome. So, I, I, I mean, it's not totally wrong. I wouldn't do that, but it's better than the alternative. And then the second one is, you know, like I realize I've been on Twitter since 2010. Well, you know, 11 years ago, I was a very different person in a very different lifestyle than I am today. And, you know, there were a lot of tweets. I used to be very political on Twitter and, um, you know, post all kinds of stuff. And, you know, a a year or two ago, I decided, you know what? Like, this is a record that's online of everything I've ever thought and put out into the world. And do I still want this there? And there are services online. I'm actually using one for Twitter now. I mean, I'm careful posting anyway, but basically it deletes my tweets after three months. It's a rolling program that just deletes them. I, I save all my tweets. I'm, I'm using sort of an online automation that when I tweet something, it goes into a, a spreadsheet. So I just have a record of it myself. But then online, it just deletes a rolling three month delete. So anytime you look at my profile, it shows around like 90 tweets, maybe or whatever, 100 tweets. Uh, and that's it. And that way, I know exactly what's in my history and what people could find if they were looking for it. I think that's really, really smart. I wasn't aware that this technology existed, but wow. Um, Yeah. Anybody listening to the show, I would strongly encourage them to get on board with something like that. That's really, really, really clever. Um, one, One last point, Cam, with regard to the overly curated profiles, I agree with you. Look, it's better to have something that looks professional than nothing at all. And the fact that there are still professionals out there that don't have LinkedIn profiles, I think is very, very problematic. This is how most people Mm. are found in the professional world nowadays. And you are really, really limiting and restricting your perspective opportunities by not having that profile. My only sort of caveat to that, Cam, would be, be very careful as an employee in ensuring that you are not overly embellishing or completely fabricating details within your profile, because that is also a problem beyond the obvious of just, you know, being dishonest or disingenuous. If an employer was to hire you on the basis of a representation that you made within your LinkedIn profile in terms of your work experience or training or what have you, and later was to find out that in fact you did not possess that experience, knowledge, or training, that can be cause for discharge to terminate you after the fact. Mm. So be very, very careful about that kind of stuff. You know, I I get it. We all want to have the best profiles. We all want to try and distinguish ourselves from, from competitors when, when looking for jobs, but you know, keep it straight, be honest. And, and, and that's always the best policy with these things. And even after you're hired, uh, be careful on LinkedIn. I have given many talks, Ewan, about people who have posted material on LinkedIn, you know, while they're holding a position in the company and, it causing a problem. This has come up because obviously companies do their own social media sweeps is very, very standard now in all companies. If you're, you know, mentioning the company or if it's there somewhere, it's going to get caught up in some sort of tracker. They're going to see what you wrote. 
you know, you and we had one case where we had one of our interns, you know, write a long story about a company he worked at and how the project management team was chaotic and disorganized and a disaster. Now, I didn't name the company, um, but when you looked at his LinkedIn profile, he only had one job. And it was at the company that he was at currently. <laughs> and I mean, we had to go to him and tell him to take that down. And this this does happen. This does happen a lot. We had a case, I think, I don't know if I told you, Ewan, we had a, um, a woman on her Facebook page uh, post a picture of her desk with a bunch of boxes on it and said she loves online shopping while in the office. And again, on her profile, it was very public and, and very clear where she worked. And again, the, it's not a, a major issue except it just reflects poorly on the company and so you know we we used to tell people if you're if you're going to post that sort of thing don't list where you work right beside it because you have a a a direct link here between what you're doing in the office where you work that doesn't reflect well on the firm and these are problems and you know both of those situations are real situations that we had to deal with great advice cam and understand that your employers are looking at these things your hr departments particularly in large companies they are keeping tabs on this stuff So don't assume that just because you've sent this out on your Twitter profile, it's not going to get back to the company or to HR. It very well might. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You and there was a big story over the last week about Apple. Actually, there's been a couple of them, um, but I want to talk about what Apple is doing in China and some of the compromises they've had to make uh, to maintain their business in China. And it sort of all came out in a New York Times expose this past week. Did you get a chance to have a look at that? I did. And uh, yeah, it's it's explosive. It's it's uh, wow. <laughs> I, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this, Cam. Yeah, you know, obviously, and I want to declare this off the top. I mean, I work in technology related to China at Tencent. So Apple's not a competitor, I I wouldn't say, uh, of Tencent. But I think some of the issues um, and sort of the uniqueness of dealing with China can be be similar. So I just want to put that out there just as a a disclosure. Um, I think, so first off, uh, some key background points here, just in case you haven't read it. Um, you can go read it. And actually, we've created a really short link, so you can go have a look at it right now if you're listening to this podcast. You can go to prlaw.link slash NYT to read the article, prlaw.link slash NYT, and have a look. And I mean, basically, Apple has taken a very strong stand on privacy, especially in the last you know seven, eight years. Um, its products are known to be quite secure. You know, the, the onboard Siri sort of personal recommendations, that's all done on device rather than from the cloud, which is why Siri is not nearly as good as Google Assistant. Um, and obviously, most recently, you know, Apple's been in a fight with Facebook over, over user tracking that has really sort of blown up. So it's taken a very, very strong stand on the issue of privacy and security and standing up for sort of user data and the security of user data. Um, but the company has huge business in China, right? And um, it's by far the most successful American company in the Chinese market. You know, Chinese people buy iPhones and iPads, um, but they also make all of the iPhones and iPads. So Apple makes about $55 billion a year uh, from the greater China region. It's a huge chunk of the company's revenue. And it's basically entirely dependent on China for its manufacturing. 
Um, so, so I mean, it's it's been a big business success story, let's say. Um, but I mean, as people know, China is not a democracy. It routinely censors content. It it surveils its people. Um, so I think you can kind of see where where this is going. Um, so the New York Times published a, a lengthy piece just looking at what Apple's had to do to maintain its business in China. And actually, I, you know, I talked to a lot of reporters, you went over the past week, and there was a little bit of a ho-hum to it, only because most of the information in there has come out before. Um, but it's sort of the first time someone's really kind of put it all together into a, a, a complete narrative. But, but individually, a lot of the facts in there um, had come out previously. It's a fascinating situation, and I'm going to tell you why from a communications perspective. So the first one is, you know, sources, you know, who talk to Apple, uh, there's a legal case that's ongoing in the in the US, where they got some documents, um, you know, they've, they've talked to, you know, past employees of Apple, they've gotten some documents that are apparently Apple documents, they've looked at documents from, from the Chinese government. So they used a lot of sources to bring this uh, story together. And then it's customary for the news organization, in this case, New York Times, to contact Apple and say, look, this is what we're going to report. Uh, here's our points. And, you know, do you want to provide a comment to this? This is something that I deal with basically every day, uh, you know, when there's news news reports out there. And Apple's comments are reflected in the story. But there is one thing that surprised me, Ewan, which I have never seen before which is Apple wrote a statement that's three or four paragraphs. It's not very long, but the New York Times linked to it uh, directly. So there's a link in the New York Times article, and if you click it, it will take you to a PDF of Apple's statement. There's no branding on the document, nothing. It's just, it says Apple's statement at the top, and there's a couple of paragraphs. I have never seen uh, that happen before. What do you... Uh, what do you... <sighs> What do you think that's about? How do you think that that came to be <laughs> that way? Because I agree with you. That strikes me as very, very odd. Usually, I mean, they, they will include your statement, even a statement in its entirety in the story, because the reporter wants to tell a, a narrative, right? So they work your your comment into it. And so this is just not, I've just never seen this done before. And, and I don't know if Apple pushed hard for this or what the discussion was. I can tell you like people in the industry over here have been discussing it because it's just, it's, it's, it's really outside of the norm and it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. In fact, I think Apple, you know, will be quite happy with this. And I do know also talking to reporters because a lot of the same ones cover Apple and cover us, you know, Apple's PR team is known for being absolutely ruthless. And I wonder if, um, you know, they, they just really, really pushed hard here in some way that we're not, we're not sure of, um, but the, we don't know. Basically, the short answer is we don't know what happened there. But I want to get into the article itself. Now, it's it's quite long. I don't want to go through the whole thing. I, I'm going to just sort of pull out a couple of takeaways just because I find it so interesting. So, I mean, background here. So Apple runs iCloud. I think people are familiar with this. iCloud has your photos, your email, your, your iCloud email, not necessarily Gmail or something else. Um, your iMessages, so people's text messages. iCloud Drive is where people store their documents, you know, their locations through Apple Maps. Um, so it's, you know, it's important data and it's very private data, especially when you're talking about photos, email messages. Now, globally, this data is encrypted and it's stored on Apple servers um, where it's secure for the most part. Um, but China introduced a law in 2016 saying, you know, Chinese citizens, the 
their data must be kept in China. And that was a big change. So Apple had to build data centers in China. And it's, um, it's built two of them, what are, which are expected to open soon, and what kind of triggered this article. So the article claims that um, Apple is censoring tens of thousands of apps in China to comply with censorship requirements. So it's not a small number. It also says Apple's made several compromises to its data security to comply with Chinese laws and that it's making sensitive Chinese user data much easier to access by the Chinese government with the insinuation that Apple is hypocritical, spouting values in the U.S. while undermining them in China. I think they're quite strong um, accusations. So I, I want to just have a quick look at the actual statement. And again, you can check this out as well at prlaw.link slash Apple if you want to follow along here. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. prlaw.link slash Apple. I just want to uh, read the first bit, Ewan. Have a listen. You can tell me what you think. Quote, we are committed to delivering the same Apple product experience to our customers around the world, including in China. In every country, we set the same high bar for privacy and security that is the hallmark of our products and services and that we believe every customer should demand. We have never compromised the security of our users or their data in China or anywhere we operate. Many of the assertions in this report are based on incomplete, outdated, and inaccurate information. In China, the law stipulates that iCloud data belonging to its nationals must remain in the country. We comply with the law, but we make no compromises on user security. We retain control of the encryption keys for our users' data, and every new data center we build affords us the opportunity to use Apple's most cutting-edge hardware and security technologies to protect those keys. Since our Chinese data centers are our newest, they feature our very latest and most sophisticated protections. In addition, we handle law enforcement requests in China through the appropriate legal process, just like we do everywhere else, and we regularly and transparently report the instances when we are compelled to provide user information. Thoughts, Yuan? Well, I think it's a great statement. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, having, having read the article, I, I understand that not necessarily to be true in its entirety. However, it, it's a great statement. Effectively, they're saying, A, we protect your data at all costs, and B, we comply with the law. Um, of course, it's that latter point where all of the gray area exists, right? In terms yes. of complying with Chinese law, what does that actually mean in terms of the protection of your data? But as a statement from a PR perspective, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, fantastic um if i work for the company i don't think it's so fantastic if i happen to be an individual living in china who is relying on the company to protect the privacy of my information that's being stored within china well i mean that's an interesting point i don't think anyone in china expects their, their data protected anywhere <laughs> 
to be honest. Um, I, I, I know in the, um, in the article there is a point about how you know, the Chinese government actually has many ways to surveil people uh, beyond just iCloud, um, which, is, which is true. I mean, there's cameras everywhere. I mean, there's tracking everywhere. So, I mean, it's, the facial recognition now in China is insane. I mean, I've obviously lived through some of this, but I mean, in many cities now, Ewan, if, if, you, if you break the law, if you jaywalk, if you do anything... Um, your image is noted right away and put on billboards with your with your identification number, your social insurance number, basically, um, for sort of public shaming. So this happens very fast now. Uh, the, the the facial recognition there is really 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 accurate. The other point, there is a bit more to this statement regarding sort of the censorship of the app store and the apps that are removed. Uh, obviously, anything that touches on you know Taiwan or Tibet or or the Tiananmen Square issue in June fourth. 89, um, you know, the protests in Hong Kong, even Dalai Lama, all of this stuff gets pulled out of the out of the app store. And so Apple addressed this as well. And this is what they had to say. We've carried. And so after they talked about sort of the the values and the way they try and protect uh, people's data previously, this follows on from that quote. We've carried those values forward on the App Store, where users in China can discover almost 2 million apps that our teams review for overall quality and illegal or harmful content. We abide by the laws in all of the countries where we operate, including China, and our teams must remove apps that fail to comply with them. These decisions are not always easy, and we may not agree with the laws that shape them. But our priority remains creating the best user experience without violating the rules we are obligated to follow. I think that kind of gets to the point, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, this is not easy. This is something that's facing a lot of American companies doing business in China. But Apple said a lot in here. And so, you and I've actually pulled out just three points because I think this is so interesting because, I mean, you can see there's contradictions here based on what the New York Times said and what Apple is claiming. It's vague. Oftentimes they don't address uh, things directly. So I, I distilled this, uh, you know, while I was preparing for, for, for this episode um, of the podcast. So, you know... I think first off, I mean, the big issue here really is about, around data security, right? So it's very standard, Ewan, to store data and then you encrypt it. And when it's encrypted, you can't read it. So, you know, if, if you have iCloud data stored in California and, you know, a hacker got in there, it's just a mix of numbers and letters. I mean, there's no, it's not useful unless you have a decryption key. And that key would decrypt the data so it is readable. Now, the, the key is usually, you know, kept in a super secure place. So this report claims, though, um, that Apple is collecting Chinese iCloud data and it's storing it in a data center in China, but that the data center is owned by a state-owned company called Guizhou Cloud Big Data, GCBD, not Apple. It's the only instance of this in the world. So point one, New York Times says, at this facility, Apple has abandoned the encryption technology it uses elsewhere. Apple says, Chinese data centers feature our very latest and most sophisticated protections, which it says will be rolled out elsewhere later. And also that we have never compromised the security of our users or their data. I think here, Ewan, both can be true, right? I mean, the New York Times says the technology is different in China than elsewhere, but it's insinuating that Apple abandoned tech used elsewhere, which kind of insinuates that it's going to be worse. And Apple agrees that it's different. 
but it's saying that it's better. Is that how you see that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, GCBD, that the, the company, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is the issue. If they have access <laughs> to to the data within China and they are subject to to Chinese laws, then Apple can effectively say we're not sharing your data because they're not because it would be GCBD, which is a separate entity. And my understanding, having read the article, Cam, um, was that this was also a means of ensuring that Apple wasn't contravening U.S. law in terms of breaching um, privacy arrangements. This was one of the was sort of a workaround that if they effectively park it in GCBD, then they will not run amok of of U.S. laws, which prohibit American companies from turning over data to Chinese law enforcement, right? That this is really the workaround um, and allows them to continue to make the very accurate statements that they've made, which is we don't share data. We have the most cutting edge technology. You do. But if ultimately you're then going to pass it off to a state owned company for them to do as they will. I mean, it is, it is somewhat misleading the way that it's been presented. Right. Point number two, what kind of encryption is used? So the New York times says Apple uses a device by tails to store encryption keys. This is a physical device where these encryption keys are stored for iCloud. New York times says the Chinese government refused to use these devices by this company. So Apple's using older iPhones, which the New York Times notes are often more vulnerable to hacking attacks because they're using older technology. The New York Times says the Chinese government needs to approve all encryption technology used in China. Apple refutes this by saying that this is old, outdated information. And again, the Chinese data centers feature their latest and most sophisticated protections. And so here, actually, Apple does not refute the claim the New York Times makes directly. Um, It is a little more vague about this. Uh, And, you know, as you kind of touched on you and saying that it features our most sophisticated protections is is quite vague. It doesn't necessarily uh, address this issue over, over, you know, how encryption is stored directly. Uh, And then quickly, point three, and you did just touch on this, who can access the information on these servers? The New York Times says, you know, these these decryption keys are stored on site in this GCBD data center. And the insinuation, again, is that the staff there can use those keys and decrypt the data whenever they want to do it. To refute that, Apple says it controls the encryption keys. Well, this does kind of contradict, right? I mean, the New York Times is basically saying that, uh, you know, that they are on site, meaning GCBD could use them is kind of what it's insinuating. It doesn't spell that out, though, directly. And Apple's saying it controls the encryption keys. And what does controls mean? Does that mean that, you know, GCBD has no access to it? I don't know. This is kind of vague. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I I have the keys to my house. I technically control access to my house, but nothing would necessarily preclude me from, you know, 
passing them off to you, Cam, to let yourself in should you find yourself in Toronto. Exactly. Um, And and I still maintain control in the truest sense of the term. Um, I have decided to give you access of my own volition. So, yeah, again, the the semantics here uh, gets pretty sticky pretty fast. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, this is the one that I found the weakest, actually, when I was going through these. Um, Because, I mean, I think it's clear. And again, like my own experience in China, like, of course, the, the government is absolutely going to be able to access this somehow. I mean, it just, that's the way it does business. And I, I do believe, and there is a track record of, of both Chinese, foreign and Chinese companies that do say no to the government. That does happen. But, you know, if it's something the government really wants to get at, uh, they've got their own, their own ways to do that. And oftentimes they don't even go through local companies or foreign companies. They've got their own methods. Uh, of doing this sort of thing. So, I mean, the fact that, that these encryption keys are on site at this data center, there's no Apple staff at that data center. It's just the state-owned staff. Uh, I think that's quite, quite ominous for people who would care about, about uh, how their data is secured. And, you know, you and the last one you mentioned uh, as well, which is just on this, you know, U.S. law where, you know, American companies are prohibited from sharing data with Chinese law enforcement and that how Apple got around that by basically saying, okay, well, we don't own the data. Um, you know, it's owned by this, uh, this Guizhou company. And that way Apple, you know, avoids uh, running afoul of this law as well. So, I mean, these are very difficult cases. I think when they happen, and believe me, I have been in very similar situations to this. And like, I will tell you that the New York Times is piecing together, uh, you know, bits and pieces from the sources that it has. And, you know, sometimes the journalists are making mistakes or there's a factual problem or there's some issue. I'm not saying that's the case here, but that it can happen. And when it happens, they run a correction. On the PR side, Apple absolutely cannot lie in what it's saying, because if it is found out to be lying, the consequences are catastrophic. They go far beyond writing a correction somewhere. And this is the sort of high wire that a lot of PR people have to walk because, you know, if, if you're lying to your own customer base, you're going to lose credibility very fast. Um, and I think, you know, the, the one thing that I think has helped Apple avoid a lot of these issues sticking is that it has built up trust uh, with a lot of its customers. And um, I think that's enabled it to avoid the worst of this. And I think even in this case, I mean, this came out a week ago, it died down pretty quickly. And I think, you know, we, we, in PR, you and we always tell executives that we need to get out there and start telling a positive story, talking to people, engaging, and they say, yeah, but why? It's Nobody wants to hear what companies have to say. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of resources, a waste of time. And then we say, yeah, but it's to, it's to build up goodwill in the event of a crisis. Um, and I think this is such a good example of, you know, how that works, because it, I think it has helped Apple for the most part. And I think a lot of people give them the benefit of the doubt um, most of the time. So um, it's definitely an interesting case study. Check out the story and and the uh, and the statement as well. Anything else on this you want to mention, Ewan? No, only to ask what sort of reputational hit, if any, do you think Apple's going to take here? You know, I, I again, I, I did speak to a lot of reporters this week about this, and this stuff was known already. It was already out there. So actually, I don't, I don't expect this to change things much, except in sort of the regular 
maybe in the consumer community, if this is something you weren't following, this might seem new. But the Chinese law that changed, uh, you know, was heavily covered by international media. The data centers opening was heavily covered. The change in the data being transferred to this GCBD, that was covered in the press. So, so like I say, a lot of reporters said like, what they couldn't have pitched this at their own, at their own place of work because the, their editors would say like, what's new here? So there is that component. And that's a bit inside baseball because I think most people probably won't know that. I mean, people don't follow the news that closely to know that a lot of this has come up before unless you work in this industry. I think ultimately the situation in China for Apple is untenable. I think this is going to unravel at some point. I don't think that you can have you know, a commitment to security at that level and also work that closely with the Chinese government. And the pressures are going to close in here. And um, long term, this is not going to work. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. All right, Ewan, we've got something unique today. <laughs> What on earth is this, Ewan? Cam, that is, and I'm, I know I'm going to butcher this, so uh, I, I apologize to any Italians listening to the show or anyone who can speak Italian listening to the show, but that was Maniskin, uh, mm. who represented Italy, Cam, at the grand final of the Eurovision Song Contest. He's a flamboyant guy. <laughs> it's it's oh it's 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 a band, Cam. Um, with their song uh, that was Ziti e Buoni, we were listening mm-hmm. to. They were the big winner, Cam, at the Eurovision Song Contest. And that is my check this out for the week. You know, Eurovision, it's it is peak fromage, Cam. Yes, peak totally. fromage yes. in in the music world. I love watching Eurovision every year. And the finals are well worth your time. They're online. You can you can watch them in sort of bite-sized pieces. You can kind of watch each country, but the finals consist of 26 different nations, Cameron, competing a big deal. for the for the honor of song of the year for the Eurovision contest. And the Italians, uh, they, they took home the gold this year with that performance. Um, this is just, you know, it's a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic show, Cam. Uh, again, it, it's the sort of thing that you'll watch and you'll think this is this, this isn't serious, right? This is, this is just tongue in cheek. <laughs> it's a joke. It's not, let me assure you, this is very, very serious business. These countries, these teams, these performers, they take this all very, very seriously. And it is absolutely fantastic to sit and watch. The fact they take it drink. The fact they take it so seriously is precisely why it's so funny. That's exactly it. That is exactly it, Cam. The first year I watched it, I thought that, that like this can't be real. It just it can't be real, and I was uh, you know sort of stared at with very very discerning looks from the friends, the very European friends I was watching it with, who effectively were saying, "How dare you? Um, Eurovision 
is legit. It's serious. How dare um, you with your North American, you know? <laughs> well, and I would, you know, I would love North American representation. I get it. It's Eurovision. We're not Europe. But really, you know, one day I hope, Cam, that Eurovision can broaden. It can become global. And Canada, the United States, and other countries around the world can can be be part of this just incredible, incredible competition yeah, that happens every year. I'm okay. We'll put that. a link in the show notes, Cam. Um, but check it out. It's it's a lot of fun. I'm okay if that never happens. Um, but yes, it's uh, if you want to laugh, if you're feeling down, uh, yeah, pull that up. Um, I, I've got something you. It's a little, I guess, more serious, and it's also related to the topics we cover on this show. And in fact, it's something I would like to dive into in in future uh, shows because it's quite fascinating. So. Um, the Intelligencer, which is New York Magazine, uh, one of their brands, has published uh, a story uh, in the last few days called Inside the Nasty Battle Between Tech and Journalism. And this has been uh, growing now for years. Uh, there is some serious friction between journalists who cover technology and the technology leaders who are I would say unaccustomed to dealing with critics. I think tech has had a pretty free ride for quite a long time. And that coverage, the tone of that coverage has changed, obviously, in the last several years. And there's quite a, a, an issue here now. And some organizations are doing away with their PR departments. Some are uh, refusing to talk to media at all. Um, it's, it's quite an interesting development that I have been following. And I think that this article in the intelligence are really sort of puts everything into perspective and looks at the changes that are happening right now. And I've actually reached out to a couple people to bring onto the show to talk about this. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get somebody on in the next uh, couple of weeks to do it, but it's definitely a, a, a super interesting article if you're interested in these issues. And if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you are. So go, go have a, go have a read of that. Uh, it's, uh, very enlightening. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. You want anything else you want to, you want to add before we put this one in the books? No, Cam, just, uh, can you maybe crank up uh, a little Eurovision for our, for our outro? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, thanks for joining us. Don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.com. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie alongside our Eurovision contemporaries. Light it up. been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.